If you brought a Bible today, please turn to Philippians chapter 3. We will bring it on the screen in a moment when we get there. Philippians 3 is where we are. And we are week 4 in a series called How Happiness Happens. In week 1, we looked at four ways that we miss happy. Uh, We miss happy by waiting around for something to happen or comparing ourselves to others or going it alone or embracing pessimism as our default setting uh, in life. In week two, we talked about how happy people are uh, full of gratitude. Happy people are grateful people and gratitude is the ability to experience life as a gift and gratitude um, is the gift that allows us to enjoy other gifts and that without gratitude, our lives deteriorate into envy, dissatisfaction, and complaining. That was the week that we issued the, you the Philippians 2.14 challenge to go 24 hours without uh, complaining. And I was uh, proud to hear from some of you and uh, your success or failure in that regard. A 24-hour stretch, that's all I asked for, that you could uh, challenge you with that to do that. And then last week, we looked at the shocking secret that happy people know from Philippians 2, the first 11 verses, and that is that happy people understand that they, to be, in order to be happy, you need to be free from uh, desiring power. Um, in fact, um, the way to joy is not indulging yourself, promoting yourself, advancing yourself, but it's being free of yourself in, other, in, other, in order to put... Uh, people first. So today I want to present to you um, the probably for many of you the single um, single number one answer for why you're not currently happy and you don't have the pervading uh, sense of happiness in your life and not for everyone but for many of us and that is your past. Your past. Uh, Something from back there is robbing you of today. So I want to present this question before you like we did the earlier uh, service. I want to present this question to you and be, be thinking about it so this sermon can be uh, most meaningful for you, not only uh, as you go, but in the moment today. Um, so here's the question. Uh, what single item from your past do you most need to let go of in order to live joyfully today? What single item from your past do you most need to let go of in order to live joyfully today? And a second corollary question for for you this morning. Um, How do you let go of not only the pain of the past, but its power over you? So we don't want to just speak into this therapeutic model today of, hey, it hurts and how can you feel better? It's much deeper than that. How can you um, not only uh, overcome or let go of the pain of the past, but its power over you? There's an old preacher story a fable of such where a, a, an old man, let's call him Fred, he goes and plays golf regularly because he's retired. And on this day, he comes home and he, uh, his wife asked him, he came home later and he looked tired. And so his wife asked him, Fred, uh, was it not a good day at the golf course? And Fred said, well, it wasn't. It started out good, but then Harry had a heart attack on the 10th tee. And she said, that's awful. He, in fact, he died. And she said, that's awful. He said, you're telling me the whole back nine, it was hit a shot, drag Harry, hit a shot, drag Harry, hit a shot, drag Harry. And for real, today, for many of you, you're dragging your past with you. Forget the old preacher story, but at least think of that image because you you wake up and you're dragging your past with you. You go to work and you're dragging your past with you. You want to focus, should focus at school, but you're dragging your past with you. You want to enjoy friends and have dinner with loved ones, but you're dragging your past with you. You want to go to bed at night, and you know you want to go to sleep at night, but you're dragging your past with you. 
And so today, I want us to look at some words that Paul says. And remember, think of the question, what single item do you most need to let go of from your past in order to live joyfully today? So we're going to look at Philippians chapter 3, I promise you that. And here's the first, uh, here's verses 7 and 8 of Philippians chapter 3. But whatever gain I had, Paul says, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Paul understands that you can look at modern, um, modern teachings or modern paths that we take to happiness and you can see it in Paul's testimony. And by the way, everybody's got a testimony. Uh, we're kind of churchy at times. We're like, man, what's your testimony? But testimony is something deep and powerful. In fact, in Revelation, at the end of the book, it talks about how they overcame them by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. Uh, having a testimony is very powerful. What's your story today? What's your story with Christ? What's your story of faith? What's a, is it one of hope and optimism and belief that's growing and progressing? Is it one of skepticism or cynicism or doubt or unbelief? Are you stagnant and bored today? Are you just unsure? What's your testimony? Paul's given his testimony, and I think he knows what we know in the modern world, that people begin to identify themselves by what they do, what they have, and what people say about them. What you do, what you have, and what people say about you. And here Paul is saying, hey, I've accomplished some things. I've developed a pretty sterling reputation uh, around the Mediterranean world. Uh, I was zealous in the Hebrew tradition. I was knowledgeable in the sacred text. And I uh, got promoted and I was a leader. I had tremendous influence. This is my story. But I take all that I have, all that I've done, and all that people say about me, and it is, ready, drum roll, you just read it, it is rubbish. It is rubbish. It is garbage. It is Dung. Here's the, the Greek word that he uses, skabalon. Uh, look at the person that you're sitting next to, whether you know him or not, whether you drove with him here or not, or met him here or don't even know him. Just look at him and say that word out loud. Say skabalon. And that's the word he uses. It means garbage. It means dung. That's pretty gross. The connotation, some uh, scholars say that it, it refers, it has a meaning with like uh, dogs in the first century, leftovers that you give your dogs, which is hard for us to understand. How many of you have a big happy dog that's like a beloved family pet, right? And we don't understand that necessarily that, uh, um, that path of understanding this, this word that he's using because like we uh, feed our dogs pristine, organic, grass-fed beef. And uh, in California where I used to live, like they take their dogs to grocery stores. They're like, what do you want? And so, but in that day in Palestine, uh, dogs roamed the streets. Uh, they were among the dirtiest of animals. And Paul is saying that all that I've done, all that I've had, and all that people say about me, all of that is kabolam. It is just rubbish. It is just dung. It is just, man, that stuff is garbage. But think about your life and mine and how we go after it. Think about what might even distract you during this sermon. It may be something pulling you away to think about what you have or don't have or what you do or did or want to do um, or not or what people say about you. You, you. We think about that and we live for that. That's the path that most of us are on. And Paul is saying, be very careful because all of that stuff, it's just rubbish. It just doesn't matter that much. So what matters? Because if you're going to get free of the past, remember you're thinking, you've already thought of that single item, that one thing uh, that's holding you back, the one thing that you need to let go of most in order to live joyfully in the present. 
And Paul is saying in order to be free from all of that, we need to know what our goal is. Look what he says in uh, verses 9, 10, and 11, I believe it is. He says, and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, and I may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Paul uses another word here when he talks about knowing. And by the way, people that get through things, that get past things, that get over things, that overcome their past, you know what they have? Paul reminds us they have a goal. Because what does a goal do? What does an overarching purpose do for you? It gives you focus, it gives you clarity, and it helps you overcome obstacles. And knowing, and here's the, the word that he uses, it's gnosko. Gnosko is the word. Now, the Greeks had... a, a a couple of different words for knowing. One time in John's gospel, I believe it's the 17th chapter, Jesus said, this is eternal life. And what would you think Jesus is about to say when he says, this is eternal life? Probably gonna mention, gonna drop some heaven on him. Gonna talk about the chronology of eternal life or the pearly gates or the streets of gold or something like that. And he, he actually says, this is eternal life that you may know God, that you may know the Father. In other words, it might be a relationship that's, that's intimate, that means something to you but it's easy for us to think of knowledge knowing as facts and data and such Um, what do you call somebody who learns about somebody else from a distance like they collect data about them and they watch them and observe them and learn some stuff about them from a distance what do you call that person a stalker you call that person a stalker and I told the 930 we had a bunch of college students in the first several rows representing the Bellhaven baseball team. But like, don't stalk. Don't be a stalker. That's just good to say anywhere, especially in church. Like, don't be a stalker. Maybe that's why you're here today, just to hear that. Don't be a stalker. But here's what so many of us are doing. We're stalking Jesus. We're collecting some data. We're observing him from a distance. We're getting some knowledge in our cranium. It, but it's just that. But it's not Gnesco. It's not the, what Paul was writing about when he's talking about intimate knowledge. If you were to ask me, Robert, tell me about your family, I would start with Susan. She's the most important person in our family. We're we're kind of empty nesters these days, and so Susan's become all the more important around our house. But if I were to say to you, well, let me tell you about Susan. She's five foot nine. She's a brunette. She has O positive blood type, and she was born in New Jersey. That'd be kind of weird, wouldn't it? That's probably not what you're looking for, but you, you, you said, tell me some stuff about your family. I started with her, and I gave you some facts, but That doesn't move you. You don't really need to know any of that or want to know any of that. And Paul is not talking about that kind of knowledge. Ganesco, it's not, it's a different kind of knowledge. It's intimacy. It's it's probably similar to what the psalmist says that you hear me quote a lot. Taste and see that the Lord is good. It's a part of your experience. Friday night, I drove to my hometown, my alma mater, to visit with uh, two of my three kids. And uh, Friday night was all about Haley and the FIMU sorority and parents night. And so I was the proud dad. Susan was with us and we were the parents showing up to meet people and we stood around. Uh, I'm an extrovert, Susan is not. Susan is great with people. I would uh, argue that she's better with people than I am, but it's just that people over time drain her energy. And whereas I like to keep, like I leave parties at gunpoint, basically. I just love to hang out. And so I'm shaking hands and slapping backs and getting to know people. But am I really getting to know them? There were drinks being served and, and music being played loud. And we were meeting people from different cities 
uh, around Mississippi and whatnot, and who's your daughter again, and who you're married to, and what, you know, and we were exchanging facts, but were we really getting to know anybody? If you ask me about my family, I would tell you some things different than my wife's blood type and her height and where she was born. If you ask me about Haley, I would tell you that she left, uh, she stayed at a party late with her parents, and then she left at 6 a.m. the next day to drive to Austin, Texas, to, he- to see Harry Styles in concert last night. That would tell you a little bit more about Haley, right? That would, you would find that weird or dumb or sinful or fascinating maybe at best. Uh, some of you would be hyped up about that and jealous maybe. But you would know a little bit more about Haley and that would be, again, more fascinating. And there's a knowledge, there's different levels of knowledge. And here's what Paul's not talking about. He's not talking about stalking Jesus. He's not talking about shaking hands and slapping backs and glad handing at a party. Uh, he's talking about uh, getting to know someone for who they really are. What do they enjoy? What are their hobbies? What's their heartbeat? What are their fears and aspirations, hopes and dreams? Where do they see themselves? What's, what's holding them back? And Paul's talking about this very thing. And this is the purpose of it all. And he's saying what? I, that's the goal. And so I'm not going to be chained to my past. I'm not going to let the past control me. I'm pressing forward so that I can know Christ. And this is very athletic, you know, very vivid imagery in athletics. This is the, the New Testament, this world uh, right here in uh, 61, 62 AD after Jesus was pre-Olympics, but it was almost Olympics. And archaeological digs and historical facts from this time and place demonstrate that there was athletic competitions that were very close to the Olympics. In fact, the precursors to them. And Paul's using language that they would understand. How many athletes in the house that can connect with me? Yeah, I'm an athlete. You're an athlete. Um, but, you know, athletes get this. He said, I'm pressing forward. And any sport, you know, even if you observe them like many of you did yesterday, you know if your team is winning or losing. You know because there's a clear goal. And Paul's saying, the thing that I press forward, I strive for this. In other words, he's saying, uh, don't do what so many of us do. Don't drift into this. Because you never drift into good things. I've never met anybody that drifts into discipleship, that drifts into generosity, that drifts into compassion, that drifts into uh, growing and developing as a person, that drifts into living a life on mission. Uh, we drift away. Hebrews 2.1 says, be careful, pay close attention, lest you drift away from the teaching. And that's, Paul said, I'm not going to drift, I press and I strive. It's actually effort. I know that sometimes, you know, we're, uh, we think, don't say effort, preacher, because it'll, it'll have connotations that you earn your salvation. Nobody can earn their salvation. Paul was really clear in these verses, my righteousness falls short. But hey, I've been given righteousness. I am Jesus Christ. And because I am him, and because I want to know him better, even sharing in the, the fellowship of his suffering, the participation of his glory, the power of his demonstration, his resurrection power, I want to know him fully, so I'm going to press in. I'm not going to leave it to chance. And some of you are this way with your past. You think that maybe you can drift into a better future. That maybe uh, uh, the pain will disappear. The regrets you have will go away. That what is locked you in, that single item that you identified that you most need to let go of from your past in order to live joyfully today. That thing that's in your head and heart, that very thing. Paul is saying, God can be in that. But you must press forward. And you must give that to him. He says, I forget. And let's be clear, this is important teaching. If you had my job, you would, uh, I'd expect you to do this as well. Because Paul says forgetting the things, and what he, what he doesn't mean is this. He doesn't mean that it's completely erased from my memory. And what I love about this is that 
those of you who are in counseling, who are wading into the deep emotional waters of your pain and your brokenness, you're finding this to be true. There's probably someone, a woman or a man across from you in a chair with a lot of schooling, a lot of learning. And they look back at you and they're telling you what research is finding to be true, that you carry stuff with you. You carry trauma. You carry pain in your body. At its foundation, at its core, you are a soul and it is spiritual, but you carry it in your body. And Paul is saying that you're not just going to forget it. In fact, um, you need at times to sit in your pain. You need at times to feel it. And with your past, don't worship your past or idolize your past. Don't glorify your past. Don't let your past beat you up. But you do need to look at your past and learn from your past. It's why people can be in a second marriage and all of a sudden it starts looking and feeling awful lot like the first marriage. Or you can get a new job or promotion or have a nice financial wrinkle that's positive, but then you look up and you're in the same old financial patterns that you've been. But you've never learned from your past. You've never thought, what is the role of money in my life according to God? What does God say about it? Or you've never looked deep and thought, why am I spending and spending? What is happening inside of me that makes me want to spend the way I do? So don't, this isn't a, a green light to erase your past. It, it actually, you need to look at your past and learn from it and be wise with it. But Paul is saying what I'm pressing on toward, knowing Christ intimately is far better than being chained to what's holding me back. I want to give you uh, three things um, from what I call a circle of bad. We're talking about happiness, but you got to walk through sorrow and you got to think about the bad stuff from your past in order to move into a greater joy today, to, in today. So the first one I want to call my bad. Anybody play basketball? You run up and down the court on an intramural team. Don't, don't you say this a lot? My bad. I do. I dribble off my foot or I miss an open man or um, brick a shot. And uh, man, you say my bad. I'm looking at a college basketball coach over here. I know he hears it a lot. My bad, my bad. And my bad, I remember when, when I was out of college, I lived uh, in Florida, but I spent two consecutive summers with the Campus Crusade for Christ in a place called Belgrade, Yugoslavia. It doesn't exist anymore by that name, but it, it's a place called Croatia. It's a beautiful land with amazing people. But we played a lot of pickup basketball when I was over there. And uh, one of the guys in, uh, they spoke good English, but it, you know, had that accent. And he's like, oh, uh, you, you're Americans. You, you say, you guys say my bad all that. You, my, my bad. What is this? My bad. You're, you're good at saying my bad. And in basketball, we Americans were really good at saying my bad over there. They, they cleaned our clock mostly. We were run up and down the court. My bad, my bad. And his observation was we're good as Americans at saying my bad on the basketball court. I give him that, but in life I won't. You and I aren't good, very good at saying my bad. Years ago, a high profile football player was videotaped standing on a table in public shouting vile offensive things to women about women. The team issued their disciplinary action by suspending him for the first half of the next football game. And as the furor grew over this, as the story journalists say, as the story continued to have legs, the team suspended him for much longer, for multiple games. And what he said was really vile. I remember looking at my two young men in the making, my boys at home, saying, man, that's not how we treat women. That's not how we view them. That's not how we talk about them. That's not a Christ-like way. And I remember that being a teaching point, and I remember just feeling awful for this guy. What's the way out of it? My bad. But at a press conference, under the glare of the lights, this athlete said, man, I just, when he was asked about it, he said this, man, I just got to overcome this adversity. And I remember, I think I spoke out loud to my TV and I said, dude, this ain't about your adversity. 
This is you needing to say, my bad. Um, Helen Keller had to overcome adversity. Nelson Mandela had to overcome adversity. Jackie Robinson had to overcome adversity. You, my brother, need to say, my bad. And God has given us a gift. He's given us a gift called guilt. One writer put it this way. And by the way, the only way out of my bad is to repent. Only one way. I know we like our options. Like we go to the grocery store, we got 350 types of cereals. We love our options. We love to be non-committal. Why? Because we got a lot of options. But there's only one path, according to the scripture, out of my bad. And it's this word, repent. God gives us a gift if we'll let it be. One writer put the, the acronym of guilt this way, that it's God's unique, intentional, loving treatment. Remember what I said a minute ago about when Paul says in Philippians 3, forgetting the past doesn't mean it's all erased or that you never think about it or feel bad about it because that's not human and that's not healthy. But you don't stay there. But guilt, that pain, that, that hurt when you've done wrong, would you let that be a gift? Because like any gift that God gives, the enemy has a counterfeit gift. And the counterfeit gift, the same writer would put it this way, it's grief united in lifelong torment. Some writers would call it shame. Your counselor, I hope you go to a counselor. Your counselor would tell you that guilt turns into shame and shame is deeper. Guilt says, I did something wrong, Lewis Mead says. Shame says, I am the wrong that I've done. And listen to me, can I say that's not true? That's a lie from the pit. But guilt, when it comes in your life, you got one of two choices. It's God's unique, intentional, loving treatment of your life. Or it's grief united in lifelong torment. My friends in recovery have been a blessing in my life. Whether it's alcohol, substance abuse, sexual addiction, a habit that they're trying to overcome that's given power, something from the past that pulls them back there. And they have a phrase from the book, from Alcoholics Anonymous, they say that it's necessary, it's necessary for their survival to do a quote moral, uh, a fearless moral inventory. A fearless moral inventory. Do you know this is what, it's why I love the Psalms. It's why I try to start each day reading five Psalms and a proverb. And reading the Psalms reminds me, like the 139th Psalm that says, Search me, and, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts and see if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the everlasting way. By the way, confession is never just feel bad about it and move on. Confession is that very thing. Search me, God. In other words, we're awfully blind. Can we just agree that we're awfully blind as people? Like we don't see the things that we need to see about us. The gift of community is very important. But we don't see these things. So search me, God, because you see in me what I don't see in me and about me. So search me and lead me in the path everlasting. Uh, one of the great toys in American history is the Etch-A-Sketch. And at 9.30, I was looking at a lot, a lot of young people, like not even knowing what I'm talking about. But the Etch-A-Sketch is in, if, uh, check this out later today during NFL football, but uh, Google the uh, National Toy Hall of Fame. Uh, you'll see toys that have transcended uh, decades of play and instruction and guidance and fun and creativity and imagination and all that, development of motor skills and 
uh, socializing, all these things that, that, that are requirements, or requisites for being in the National Toy Hall of Fame with the Etch-A-Sketches in there. And my wife, who was on the front row of the 930 service, she, she ended up being a psychology major at San Diego State, which she uses her degree at home on me all the time. But she started out as a freshman. Anybody change your major in college? She started out as a freshman in art. And some of you may not know this. It's a talent she hides under the bushel, but she's, she's an artist. She can paint murals on the wall. She can draw things, and she's really, really good at it. Uh, when she had an Etch-A-Sketch, man, she could, like, make things. When I was a kid and I had an Etch-A-Sketch, I could like barely do stairs. But what I love the most about the Etch-A-Sketch is that when you mess up, you shake it and it's gone. Sounds like I'm contradicting what I just said earlier because I'm going to tell you what the scriptures teach and what a good counselor will tell you that you do need to sit in your pain. You do need to learn and reflect from your past because you don't want your second marriage to be like your first. You don't want your uh, cycle of financial spending Uh, that's been out of control to continue to repeat itself. You don't want to walk around pulling Harry with you from hole to hole on the back nine. But God in his grace has an etch-a-sketch. And when we come to him, he says, I'm going to shake it up and you got a new start. If you want a biblical reference, I could quote literally thousands of passages. I'll go with Lamentations 3.23. For God, your mercies are new every morning. New start. When you go to sleep and trust in him and rest in him, he shakes it for you and you've got a new start. When you say, when your pain from your past is a my bad, then the result is guilt. But the only way through that is to repent of fearless moral inventory and saying, God, you got this and you forgive. The second way, uh, by the way, here's Sister Hazel. Uh, If you want to be somebody else, If you're tired of fighting battles with yourself, if you want to be somebody else, change your mind. I love the lyric from this rock and roll band. You got to change your mind. And they didn't know it probably. I'm sure they were strung out on drugs and alcohol themselves. But uh, they were referencing this wonderful gift that God gives us. When you're feeling guilt at its worst, there's this wonderful gift. Change your mind. Can I say today, change your mind. Change your mind about what you've done. The fact that God can forgive you and you can walk in newness of life. The second bad is not my bad, it's your bad. It's not something you've done from your past, it's something somebody has done to you. And the feeling of my bad is guilt, 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 guilt that could turn into shame and the only answer is to repent, to change your mind. And this feeling here is a feeling of resentment because somebody did something to you. It wasn't what you did. And what modern science physicians that I know are backing this up is that neurons and synapses inside your brain and in your body like have these toxins when resentment builds up and it just is not cleansed with one fell swoop. It's not one little miraculous touch. Now God can do anything. But what I'm learning in counseling and unpacking my own stuff from my own past is that this is stuff that gets deep in us. And the only gift, the only way out of resentment, there's only one way, drum roll, it's this word, it's to forgive. Again, tons of options. We love our ingenuity and our creativity. We like to think that we've cooked up something that God never thought of. But the gift he gives us is forgiveness. Laura McAlpin knows this because she sees me do 
a whole lot of weddings, but for years I've quoted Ephesians. If I married you, I quoted Ephesians 4.32. I don't know if you're listening. Uh, grooms these days are sweating and crying. They're not listening to me. Maybe the bride is. I don't know. Maybe somebody in the church is. But Ephesians 4.32, be kind, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake has forgiven you. And I look at every couple a lot of times in their wedding and I say, hey, when you forgive so-and-so, bride, when you forgive groom, you are not a queen granting a royal pardon on a throne. You are a fellow forgiver. You forgive because you've been forgiven. Hey, groom, rented tuxedo boy, when you forgive her, you are not a king granting a royal pardon from a throne. You forgive her because you've been forgiven. And look, that's from Ephesians 4.32, and it's so beautiful. It's so healing, and the world needs healing. But let me tell you, it's personal testimony for me because I know when I'm having a hard time forgiving somebody, and I've had some people betray me. I've had some people hurt me. I've had a ton of my bad. I just ain't going to tell you all my bad. I ain't going to tell you all my bads. But I've had some your bad, too. Look at me for a second. If you're hurting over your bad, I've had some your bad too. And your story may not be my story, but I will tell you that I have been able to forgive some people because I vividly think of how Christ has forgiven me. And there's no way around this. And we said this in our series, Drive Through Love, when we talked about knowing and trusting and relying on people before we commit to them. You don't have to trust someone again if you don't have the capacity if God doesn't give you that or you can't conjure it up in your own strength you don't have to trust someone you don't have to restore the relationship but you must forgive you must forgive and it's a surrender and it's letting go but listen to me don't give up hope on a a relationship being reconciled and sometimes to do your part even in forgiveness you need you definitely need to talk to God about it I've had a lot of conversations with God and the releasing from my past with resentment, I've gone on prayer walks. It's not enough to be in my office or on my bed. I got to go walk under and stand under an oak tree or something and talk to God about it. And it ain't always pretty clean language. But talk to God first and then explore talking to that other person so that you can be released from the resentment that you sow. So my bad is what you've done from your past that's messing with you and it's robbing you of living joyfully today. You feel guilt about it and the only way out is to repent, to change your mind. And then your bad is when someone's done something to you, there's resentment and it's flowing in your bloodstream. It's harmful toxins. And the only way through that is to forgive. And the last thing I would give you is it's bad. My bad is I did something wrong. Your bad is something was done to me, to you. But it's bad, it's just bad. Something happened, and it's just bad. People um, studied, um, researchers studied 1,700 people for decades of their lives, from early um, childhood through their um, golden years. People who uh, were people like us, just like us in the room, where we've had stuff happen, bad stuff have happened to us. And they looked at their lives through three like axes, if they will. Uh, they called the first one vitality. The second was called passage of time. And the third one was called suffering. And vitality is your well-being. If we were to ask you after church today, how's your well-being, what would you say? You'd probably say good, fine, or busy so you could get to lunch. But if we went deeper, how would you say you're really doing? Because we're all going to suffer and we're all going to get older and at this party Friday night, this parents' party, I was looking at parents. I was like, there's no way they're my age. I look so much better than them, so much younger. Look at my youthful glow. And, and, uh, but we're, look, we're all, we're all getting older. 
And there's this passage of time and, and they, they studied these lives and they said, you know, there's some people, this will be not, not a shock to anybody, that to some people, they suffered through the passage of time and their vitality, they never, they never came back. They, they, they're not doing well. At best, it's survival. At best, they're just hanging on and holding out for some glimmer of hope, but they haven't found it yet. They haven't recovered from the suffering in their lives. Their vitality is not what it once was through their passage of time. Some people, they said, rebounded. They're right back to where they were. They suffered, but they came back. They, they actually were able to recapture the vitality that they once knew. And then there's some people, the rarer folks among us, who suffered greatly, but listen to me, they actually are more vital now than they were. They not only recovered, they rebounded in a different level because the answer to this is hope. It's what David had when he was in the battle with Goliath. It's what Joseph experienced when he left the prison. Um, it's what Daniel faced fearlessly in the lion's den. It's what Paul experienced in a Philippian jail cell. That amidst the tough, there's hope. And so as Lauren as the team come and we begin to close out our service today, I want to ask you that thing that I asked you at the beginning. What is the single thing that you most need to let go of in your past to live joyfully in the presence? And now that you've heard this message, I want to ask you what category would it be in this circle of bad? Is it a my bad? Is it a your bad? Is it a, it's just bad. And I want to pray for you today that God would extend his grace to you. Um, would you stand as I pray? And right before I pray over you, I want to give us some instructions. We're going to, uh, pr I'm going to pray and then we're going to sing uh, just a couple of minutes of my new favorite song. Thank you, Lauren. Thank you, team. This song is uh, just so powerful. And I pray it is over you today. Then I'm going to come right back up. And lead us in a time of invitation where our altar is going to be open and we're going to be down front desirous of praying for you. And this song admits that God is the same. And what he did then, he can do now. It's the same God. And he can minister in your past. This morning I'm praying today, as I did in the first service, that all who are willing, that this would be a strategic, helpful, healing bomb moment for you to not be chained to your past, but that God would bring some healing in this moment. So stay, don't go. Sing with us if you can. If not, listen to this team and their talent sing over you. And then we're gonna extend the invitation for you in just a moment. Father, bless this time in Jesus, amen.